So I'd like to call uh, Dr. Gerald Bohemier to the stand. <clears throat> Dr. Bohemier, um, we'll begin by asking you to state your full name for the record, spelling your first and last name. Gerald Bohemier, uh, G-E-R-A-L-D, Bohemier spelled B-O-H-E-M-I-E-R. In French, it's Bohemier, but we'll go along with the Bohemier or Bohemier. Okay, well, I, I do want to, to say it correctly, so I apologize if I'm, I'm not, and, uh, <laughs> and I'll just call you Gerald because I know you as Gerald. Do you, uh, Gerald, promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do, so help me God. <clears throat> now, uh, I'm going to state your age, um, and I do that for a reason, because it, it makes your story more compelling, but you were 72 years old. I'm 73, almost 74 in a few months. Okay. So much for my note-taking during interviews. So you're 73 years of, of age, and you are a retired chiropractor. That's correct. I've been retired for about 20 years now. And um, even though you retired as a chiropractor, though, is you basically spent your entire life looking into natural health issues. Yes, and I continue to do that. Um, I, I coach a lot of people. I've been asked uh, by a lot of people to help them understand how they can naturally become healthy again and to many times uh, try to um, not have to rely on any kind of uh, pharmaceutical medications. And I've been very proud and happy to, to have the knowledge and to be able to assist them when I, when I can. Yes, you've, you've basically devoted your entire life to trying to be a healer to people? Well, that's a, that's a word uh, that I've never used about myself because the healing comes from the inside of the body. But, but you know what I mean. The, uh, the best thing a doctor can cure is bacon and ham and sausages and things that are dead. Um, the, entire, the entire healing is an automatic thing you're born with. It's part of being a human being. It's part of God's creation, basically. And when COVID hit, um, you were working part-time um, doing some quality assurance work for a natural health product company, am I right? Yes, as a senior and um, having had the opportunity to be their spokesman at many health uh, expos in Winnipeg and abroad, um, I was offered the, the, the job when they decided to open up a new plant here in uh, Winnipeg to become their quality assurance uh, supervisor and to make sure that every product that is sent out to the market follows all of the rules, all the regulations, and that the lab tests show that the, the product is uh, indeed safe and, uh, safe and uh, available for the, safely available for the public. Now, I'm, I'm not from Manitoba. Um, but since coming here for the hearings, I have learned a lot about a notorious group called the uh, Manitoba Five. And my understanding is that you are a member of this notorious group. Proudly a Manitoba Five member, yes. So <clears throat> can you kind of share with us the journey of how you came to be an esteemed member of this group? My understanding is, is that it basically began in, in January to February of 2020 as, as we were learning about 
this new virus called COVID-19. Yeah. And so, yes, I was like everybody else. I was uh, listening attentively to what was going on in the media and uh, my meters of uh, non-truths uh, were, were just firing on all cylinders. Um, and that's because my whole upbringing and the whole professional uh, training as a chiropractor believed in the terrain theory as opposed to the germ theory. And therefore, I was never worried about a germ or a virus. And I was always worried that if I was going to um, protect myself or my loved ones, I would train them to understand that the terrain, which is your body physiology and, and chemistry, was always up to par so that any um, bacteria or any microbe that could, could be coming in that's different, that the body's going to be surprised by, it's not going to have a big effect, okay? So it, it, that was basically how I felt very strongly about and how I'd been trained and how I had scientifically read and read and read. If you saw my collection of books that I have, you would see that um, I felt very strongly about that position. The terrain theory as, and versus the... Gerald, I'm just going to focus you because I'm, okay. I'm wanting you to talk actually about you going to rallies and, oh, okay. and what you were protesting, right protesting there and, right. and kind of get into what those experiences yeah. were. Right. So the minute I started hearing that there was going to be some rallies organized, and the, these were rallies that initially I had heard from uh, a few of the ladies that uh, were putting them on, I decided uh, that we're going to attend these rallies and uh, we're going to see what's going on here because... Uh, hopefully, uh, they are um, going to tell the truth about what's going on. So I attended uh, many, many rallies, uh, every, everywhere from the, um, the legislative building, the city hall, um, at the, at the uh, forks where we have our very infamous, um, um, uh, what's the name of that big building there? My, my mind is slipping up. The, the Human Rights uh, Building, and uh, so we, we attended, we had rallies at that exact site on a numerous occasions, and one of the times, and I'm just going to put this as an aside there because it sits on my mind, um, there was at the Human Rights Museum, at the Human Rights Facility, if you were not vaccinated, you were not allowed in that building, okay? And so the dichotomy was just so overwhelming. So anyways, and then many of the, the, uh, the rallies that I attended to and spoke at uh, were out of town, in, in Steinbeck and in Winkler and, and elsewhere. Now, did you notice a police presence at these rallies? I'm sorry, I didn't hear Did that. you notice a police presence at these rallies? Uh, they were always present. Uh, they, were, they were always initially very kind and just uh, observant. And then we started to see that they're taking pictures. And um, eventually, uh, following these rallies, uh, they started coming to the door and pounding the door. And we would not answer them because we did not recognize who was that. And we're seniors, and we don't let anybody into our homes, and especially when they have an attitude of pounding on the doors. Um, 
they were there to deliver tickets and the tickets were $1,296 and I thought that was pretty weird until somebody pointed out that that's the multiplication of six times six times six times six. And so I thought, okay, we got, we got some bureaucrats involved here. There's no doubt that um, they're, they're out to punish. They're out to punish a dissenting voice that on social media was completely um, censored. Uh, I and many others that had the same ideas as I did were censored on So the only place that my voice was heard was outdoors, in public, uh, in, in gatherings called uh, uh, rallies. So, okay. so I, just, I just want to focus. So you were trying to have a voice online, yes. and you were finding that you were censored. That's right. Uh, and, and, and your voice was about the government activities. You were basically trying to have a voice about what you thought about lockdowns and masking and, and mandates and things like that, right? Absolutely, absolutely. They were all ridiculous in my opinion, and I had to tell uh, the people my story. And then, don't forget, there were many, many doctors uh, worldwide and scientists worldwide that had uh, a voice that was never heard. Right, uh, but, but I just I would want to focus you on it, and you, okay. you kind of started to talk about it. It's, it's, because I'm wanting you to share, you know, basically your experience with state power. Because you were, you were going to protests to have a voice, to basically say, "Look, at I disagree with this." And yes, right. my understanding is you were always completely peaceful. Yeah. And the protests were peaceful. Very but peaceful. But you discovered right away that the police were filming. That's correct. And then you you told us about about people coming to your door, but. These weren't the police coming to your door, were they? Uh, no, um, it was very quick um, to see that they were tattooed, very large people uh, with attitude. And I'd hear them say, come on, Bohemia, come on out here, put your big pants on, we've got something to give you. You know, that kind of stuff. My wife was shaking. She still has PSD, and somebody knocks at the door, she jumps right away. And so, this is three years later. And, and these people would literally be banging on the door, like oh, yeah. pounding on we're, the door. We're talking right? fists here. Okay, okay. so I, I just, because I, I think the world needs to hear what you're saying. So, so the state of Manitoba basically hired some Canadian ambassadors yeah. that were big, yeah. that were tattooed, yeah. that were not police officers. No. And they were coming to your door to give you tickets for your protesting. Yes. And they would pound on your door. That's correct. And they would yell through the door, yeah. basically taunting things. Can you repeat what they were saying? Well, like I just said, the, 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 worst, the worst of the, the words were, come on, Bohemia, put your big, pan, big, big boy pants on and come on out here. We've got something to deliver to you. And, and I did go out initially the first time or two times, but after that, they were, they were not going to come to the property anymore. We put up no trespassing sign. They were always escorted by a real police officer. We, we recognized that there, were all, there was always a cruiser car with a couple officers in there, just in case that I would take out a baseball bat or something like that, but I'm not that kind of person. Okay, so there would always be a police car and then another vehicle? Yeah, one or two other vehicles. Um, uh, up to three vehicles that I can remember at the one time, yes. Okay, and then you basically said that that Rose would 
would freak out. So oh can you explain goodness. for us who, who Rose is and, and give us more, more of an understanding there, what, what you're describing? Rose and I have been together for 23 years. So uh, she is my partner and she's amazing in this, and she has the same uh, drive for natural health and natural health products and, and, and what have you. And so we get along just incredibly that way. And uh, she's diminutive, she's not very big and strong. And when these poundings happened, uh, it was very threatening. It was very threatening, especially to her. Um, I, I, I wasn't really bothered by that because I knew the door was secure enough that they couldn't pound their way in and that there were police officers out there and that would never get to that stage. And, but nevertheless, it still left us with this, this impression that, my goodness, what is going on in this world, okay? This cannot be happening in Canada. This is like thugs at the door here. For to give me a ticket? Why don't they just mail it to me, you know, that kind of stuff. No. How, how many times would, would this have happened where basically these, these big tattooed people are showing up and pounding on your door to give you tickets? Well, of the nine tickets that I received, I believe at least seven were delivered to the door. Um, a couple more, the, the other two would have been delivered, uh, let's say, at the uh, Church of God, uh, um, at that one incident that was heard uh, where the police were blockading uh, people entry uh, to that church and I uh, had shown up in support of that church and eventually stepped out of my car and walked over and stood between the tow truck and the van that they wanted uh, that the police had ordered towed out of the way on the highway and this van contained children and a family and I started to yell Criminal Code 176, you are causing, you are creating, you are, yeah, what's the word I use? Um, you, no, they were, they, they were, they were doing a crime. How do you say that? Committing? You were committing a crime. You're committing a crime against com, uh, the, the Criminal Code of Canada, Section 176, where you cannot interfere with a church or a pastor when he's in, in, in the process of wanting to uh, give a sermon or a, uh, his, 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 uh, his congregation uh, a service. And when I started saying that, some young guy pulled out his cell phone and sure enough, he was flashing it around. Yes, Criminal Code 176 does say that. And all of a sudden, the police officers seemed to calm down. And the, superior, the, the superintendent, not the superintendent, but the sergeant from that detachment of the RCMP started to look at his officers and then he uh, seemed to melt away and tell the tow truck to back off. And we were very happy of that. At that time, the preacher approached the car that was on the highway being blocked and we had a prayer service right there on the car and the family in the car. And we knew we had had a victory right there. So getting, getting back to these tickets, yeah. um, so you said it basically roughly seven, at least seven times they came to your door. Yeah. Um, how would those, that be um, kind of timed in relation to rallies that you attended? Well, many of them were several days after a rally. Sometimes uh, I would get a ticket uh, at a rally, like at, in, in that case of the Church of God, 
I was parked on the highway, and when they recognized my car, that's easy, the plate number, uh, they had surrounded my car, and they put a, they put a ticket in my window. I wouldn't let them, I wouldn't open my window to, to talk to them or anything. So they put the ticket in my windshield wiper, and I flushed it off, okay? But anyways, um, so they got, that was a ticket for a previous um, occasion, and shortly after that, they were banging on my door to give me one for having attended at that particular um, uh, outdoor event that was uh, against the rules of the, the government. Okay. Now, how many, how many thousands of dollars in total have you been ticketed, do you think? Um, the, the face value is nine times 1296. I believe that's uh, gotta be close to 12,000 plus dollars, uh, somewhere in that vicinity. Yeah. Now, as I understand it, um, you've also had the uh, experience of being arrested. Oh my goodness, yes. And can you share with us um, what happened? Yes. Unbeknownst to a warrant that had been, um, as I understand, um, encouraged by our Premier of Manitoba at the time that we gotta do something. These, these, these clowns are not gonna stop just with fines. They seem to be just thumbing our nose at the fines, and we were, absolutely. Got another one, no problem. Um, I was in the backyard doing gardening with, uh, with Rose, and at the same time, I had lent my sound equipment, because I'm a musician, I have a very powerful sound equipment, to another group of people in Winkler that wanted to do a rally that day. I was not able to attend, but they had uh, access to my sound equipment. And that gentleman's father uh, was returning the equipment to me at the same time as the police officers arrived. And they came into the backyard and said that I was under arrest. And I said, for what? There is a warrant out for your arrest and we're taking you in. Oh my goodness, and all, 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 all hell broke loose. Interestingly enough, the father that was returning the equipment had a phone and he started filming the whole thing. So the whole thing is videotaped and, and available on Rebel News. And it became quite the public uh, embarrassment to me in, 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 in public to get arrested. Uh, but nevertheless, I took it uh, with my big boy pants on. <laughs> and off I went uh, with some with some resistance, and eventually they started hurting my shoulders too much, and I, I begged them to, to not do that, because at my age, uh, I don't want to be injured. So they did handcuff me in front, and then I uh, went into the car. They escorted me downtown, into the elevator, upstairs, and into the jail area, where they began to process me. And they had told Rose before leaving because she was so worried. When are you going to come back? Oh, it's a two-hour pro process. Um, he's going to be uh, processed and released on a promise to appear. He'll be back in a couple hours. And this was 7 o'clock at night. And so, so by... Now, now uh, did the officer tell you that he could have just given you the promise to appear at your home? Uh, no, he never did that. Never offered me as that as an option, no. Okay. And it gets worse. I get processed. I'm still in the process room. I was interrogated, blah, blah, blah. Three hours later, those officers that brought me in are still there. And I turned to one of them 
Um, he was a corporal. Interestingly enough, the, I had learned subsequent to that that two groups of officers refused to come to my house to arrest me. Why? Because one of the officers' father who was significantly injured in a motorcycle accident and had suffered tremendously, was helped by my chiropractic adjustments. And his son refused with his, with his team of officers to come and arrest me, who had helped his father so much. The second set of officers that were told to come and pick me up said there's a conflict of interest. My mother's his cousin, first cousin. And so that led only the corporal, so that probably one of the superior officers in the, in the thing, to team up with somebody else to come and, and, and to arrest me. So I'm, I'm talking to the corporal now after three hours of being in this jailhouse still sitting in the interrogation rooms, and I say, you told my wife it's gonna be two hours, and I'll be processed and released on a promise to appear. And he turned all red. He says, yeah, that was our intention, but when we got here, we were informed that there was a memo sent out by the Department of Justice to hold us here until we appeared in front of a magistrate and not before. So therefore, you're going to probably spend the night here, unfortunately. And I found out recently that there were magistrates available up until 11 o'clock at night in a typical uh, or, uh, jailhouse like that. And I don't know if, if that's right, but if so, I was lied to that I would get out after a promise to appear, and I was told that the only way we're getting out is in front of a magistrate to, 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 to make a contract with him or her, and that there was none available, and we're going to have to spend the night in jail. So, so I'm, I'm, just, I'm just curious because I'm familiar with the criminal laws. So um, the arresting officer can release you on bail conditions. You were not released by the arresting officer on bail conditions. I was not uh, given that option. No. Okay, and, and the officer in charge, which is probably the corporal, can also release you on bail conditions, and that didn't happen? That never happened, no. So you were held, um, my understanding is, for 16 hours. That's correct, by the time we were finally walking out the door. Um, <clears throat> now, so you weren't in the interrogation room that whole time. You were put in a cell, am I correct about that? Yeah, right about the time that uh, he was telling me that you're going to spend the night here, uh, that's when they uh, escorted me to a jail cell because they had finished um, talking to me, asking me all the questions that they would ask, and uh, I was assigned the jail cell. And the problem is that um, when I entered uh, there, I was told that there's only one layer of clothes that you can have on. And so uh, by the time I would strip down to one layer of clothes, I would be in um, my underwear and a t-shirt. And I says, at my age, I'm gonna freeze to death here, okay? And then one young officer said, well, put your sweater on and your sweatpants on, and that'll be your one layer of clothes. And then plus that, I get a little blanket or something like that when you're in there. And I thanked him for that, because how, how incredibly 
smart was this young officer to give me that, that option. So I stripped down and put on the, the warmer pants and the, and the sweater, and therefore I was definitely more comfortable for the rest of the evening, because I got put into a concrete room, the lights on, the, with, with no soundproofing, so it's very noisy, everything's concrete. I'm given this little flimsy, what they call the wool blanket, it's definitely not the kind of wool blanket that I've ever seen. And I'm sitting on this concrete thing, embarrassed to death, not knowing what's going to happen next. I'm 70 years old. I've got an enlarged prostate. I've got to pee every hour. So I knock at the door. And all the way till midnight, the staff would open the door, allow me out, and put me back in. No problem. No questions asked. So you mean allow you out to go to the bathroom? After midnight, there was a new... But I just want to I'm sorry, I allow, didn't hear you then. They would allow you out of the cell yes. so that you could go to the bathroom. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. And so um, at midnight, there was a crew change. And um, my, I, there was no way I was sleeping. There was noise, uh, the doors slamming all the time. The, everything's steel and concrete, and they're processing people all night long, and bing, bing, bang. Um, I, d I was not aware at the time that there was some of my friends that had been arrested that day either. Um, but anyways, that's, we met the next day. Um, come midnight, or somewhere after midnight, uh, it's time to pee again. I get up and knock at the, win at the door, and a, girl, a lady shows up. Yeah, what do you want? Um, I've got to go, uh, go to the bathroom. Okay, put on your mask. Um, no, I don't have a mask, and I don't wear a mask, and I was, I was uh, allowed and processed in this facility with a mask exemption. Well, we don't care about mask exemptions. Well, and hearing that discussion, the sergeant comes from the desk, and he puts his face about 12 inches from mine, and he's turning red, and he's F-bombing me that you're going to wear this effing mask because I don't... I'm here to protect my staff, okay? And I don't care about your effing uh, uh, medical, uh, whatever it's called, to not wear a mask. And I says, well, I'm not going to wear a mask. I was looking at him. I thought it, he turned so red, I thought he was going to explode. That's how livid he was. He wasn't wearing a mask, okay? And anyways, um, I just stared him down, and he finally just said, and I finally said, I am not going to wear a mask. And he slammed the door, slid the window off, basically, tough luck, buddy. So I turned around, very depressed about that, and very innervated by the, the force of his voice, and, and the closeness, and the redness in his face, and his eyes were just bleeding. I thought he was going to blow a fuse. And I turned around, and oh my goodness, there's a floor drain in the corner. And so I relieved myself in a floor drain in a corner. How embarrassing is that? But it was a solution. And for the rest of the night, I didn't have to bang on the door and have that kind of treatment by this staff that had replaced the earlier staff, which was very kind all the way through. In fact, so kind that one time, around 11 o'clock, they were ready to go. He knocked at the door. One of the jailers, a very young, obviously a very junior member, 
He says, I've got good news for you. Oh, what? He says, I've got news from your son. He said, my son, he lives in Michigan. Yeah, but he went to school with one of the officers that refused to, to arrest you. And I'm not going to mention the name. But he said, your son sends off a message, Dad, I'm proud of you. You're my hero. And so it, it was a moment of joy that this young officer, the jailer, had brought me. It was like a gift. It made me very emotional, and I still am. And so after midnight, it's just regular freezing to death in there. There's no way to stay warm. The little blanket was used as a pillow because it's all concrete. You're a big concrete pad, probably the size of this table. And you have to stretch out in there and try to be comfortable. There was no way to sleep. I didn't get any sleep. And the next morning, um, they finally came around 11 or 12 uh, saying that uh, you, can, um, you can call a lawyer. Which lawyer do you want to see? I said, Rocco Galati. Okay, we'll get in touch with uh, Rocco Galati and we'll see if uh, you can have an interview with him. And so they did call and he was not available, so they came back and said, um, no, the... Um, and, and, and Jerry, I'm just going to speed you up a bit because some of that we don't need. But okay. you, were, you were eventually released after 16 yes. hours and put on conditions. Got to see a magistrate, uh, read the riot act, signed the, under duress. If you look at my signature on that release order, it's written under duress, okay? They did not pick up on that, I guess because I scribbled it, but you can probably see it. And I was let go. I get downstairs and, or I, I asked them, I says, can you, call, uh, can you call my wife and have her pick me up? And no, we don't do that here, but if you go downstairs, uh, you'll go to the end of the block and there's police services in there and you can go in there and have them uh, do that. Well, I did that and they wouldn't do it. So here I am in the middle of, um, I don't remember the name of the street there, York or whatever. So I turn around and say, okay, well, I'm just going to walk to uh, St. Boniface. Uh, there's a couple restaurants that I could use their phones there because I had no right, phone. But, no but Jerry, I'm just going to focus you because we don't need that much detail. I was just trying okay. to get that you were basically prohibited from having contact with people and, and the effect that that was going to have on you under that court yeah. order. But there's one interesting part about my okay. walk back well, home. I have to say it because on the opposite side of the street, there was a release of another one of our the top five, uh, Miss Vickner, Vickner. And all of a sudden, we get to Main Street. So you can imagine she's walking on one side, I'm walking on the other side. And we say, oh, my goodness. And we went, and we crossed, and we looked, and we were so timid, and we hugged. And then we went each our own way, uh, not to be all of a sudden discovered, because we were told not to be within 200 meters of each other of any of the five, okay? But anyways, I got a hug in, uh, in this, uh, before I, I entered St. Boniface. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, well, <laughs> so how did it make you feel, basically? Because this, once you were under the court order, it, it, it did basically stop your activities. My voice was extinguished for over a year. Right, so for, so you... For over a year, you couldn't participate in, in rallies? None. Under, the, under the, 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 the pressure that I would go to jail until the trial date, 
which was never revealed to us until way many months later. It was al almost a year anyways. Yeah. Right. So basically the, the force of the state succeeded in silencing your voice. I was um, depressed. I was sad. I was not permitted to do something that I enjoyed so much, talking to people about alternative health and how to stay well in spite of a a so-called virus uh, that's going to cause so much uh, havoc. I didn't believe in that theory anyways. Thank you. I've got no further questions um, except that uh, I want you to share how you learned about losing your job. Um, the night after the, the rally, the first rally we went to, there was a couple of young individuals that picked the pictures out of the free press and on public, on their Facebook, I guess, said, hey, we got to find out who these people are, we got to find out who they work for, and we got to get these people fired. And it got to the company that I was working at, and oh my God. So they, in a knee-jerk reaction, immediately published a letter to the free press and to the government saying that we have no affiliation with uh, Dr. Bohemi, none. So that night after the rally, when this was all happening, because the Free Press had published the papers already, published the pictures already, I found out while at home celebrating that we had such a great rally, okay, that you're being fired. They're, 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 you're, you're, you don't have a job anymore. They're, they're saying that they've, they've cut costs, they, they've cut, I says, what? No, I know these guys, I've, I've, I've known them for 35 years. They would never fire me without at least calling me and telling me, hey, we got a problem, we got a PR problem, we're gonna have to let you go kind of thing. We gotta disassociate our company from, from your activities, you know. That never happened. It still hasn't happened today. Right, so basically you were fired because of people's yeah. actions and social That's shaming. Right. And it wasn't a big job, but for a 70, back then I was 72, for a 72 year old, one day a week, I was in there doing paperwork making sure that all processes got done properly so that we could certify that the product could be released to the public. So that's what this, the, uh, the quality assurance person was uh, entitled to do. And the quality insurance person had to have a degree, and I did have a degree. So I fit all the criteria, and man, it paid really well. A couple hours uh, every Wednesday, I'd drive in 75 mile, uh, kilometers from our farm and uh, did all that paperwork for them and said goodbye, and uh, they gave me a big fat check every, every month. Right. Thank you, I have no further questions. The commissioners might have some questions for you. Yes, sir. Good afternoon, Dr. Brahimier. Good afternoon. When, at the time that your employer fired you, had you been convicted of a crime? Uh, no, not at all. Never been convicted of any crime. You, I think somewhere in your presentation you mentioned that you felt you were under pressure. You, you, did you feel like you were under pressure um, when you made the decision to go to these rallies? Were, were you, were you, were you um, apprehensive about doing that? No, on the contrary. Uh, going to these rallies was like, a, oh my goodness, I, uh, my voice can be heard here. And I, and, and I, and I really believed that my, the, the things that I had to say would help people, would help people lose the fear. I saw the fear campaign and I needed to go to these rallies. I felt I needed to be there. But you, did you not understand that there was some potential for um, retribution or fining or in any of these activities that you undertook? 
Um, not at the time, not at the first ones or something. Once, once the tickets started being delivered, uh, yes, now I, I knew that uh, it was a game off because I had nine tickets, but we did probably 15, maybe 20 rallies. So there was at some point in time when you did understand that there may be consequences. Yes, at that point, uh, I thumbed my nose up at the consequences. I was going to speak, and people needed to hear that they don't have to be afraid of a virus. The reason I ask you that question is because previous witnesses today said that other people had felt pressure in their positions, and that perhaps explained why they didn't they didn't serve uh, the Manitobans. I mean, I'm, I'm particularly talking about the judge who uh, who uh, testified today that other judges must have felt pressure. And my point is, is you must have felt pressure too, but you did what you thought was right. I did so. And when I received the notice that I was no longer employed, um, I was expecting a phone call to tell me what had happened. They never did that, but I retired at that point. And I made up my mind, I don't need that job. And therefore, although it was, it was great people to work with and the products that they produced were great, I just quit. And so I, I, basically, that was a relief off of my shoulders. I don't have to worry about Wednesday mornings anymore. Uh, I'm going to spend a day uh, at, the, at the factory. So no, it's, no, I, I just, get me out of the rally and give me a horn. I felt, I felt I was doing something. That was important to me. Thank you, Doctor. You're welcome. Thank you, Dr. Fahimi. Uh, on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry, we, oh, I'm sorry, there's another question. I apologize, Commissioner. Oh, sorry. I'm just wondering if you had another opportunity to speak to those um, ambassadors who came pounding your door, what would be the words that you would tell them? Um, knowing that they were hired thugs, I would have not spoken to them. I would not given them five minutes of my time. I would have gone to the police officers. I said, get these people off my property, okay? And they would have had to, because uh, unless they had a court order to be on a property, uh, they would have not have been able to be there. No. Thank you. You're welcome. And sorry to be premature, commissioners. Um, so, Gerald, on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry, we sincerely thank you for coming and sharing your story today. It was very important to hear your experience. Thank you for the opportunity.